Chapter 5, Part A, Women of America, by John Ruth Larris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, The Early Colonial Period. There were many marked differences between the period of settlement and the early colonial period, which latter, for our present purpose, we may roughly class as that extending from 1630 to 1685. Of course, the most salient difference was that in the colonial epoch there first appeared the racial American as we now know him, not the red man of the forest and plain, to whom such title was really due, but the white American, the son of the soil, but not of generations of dwellers thereupon, the American as universally entitled today. It must be remembered that there is no parallelism in the chronology of the beginnings of the North and the South. The Virginia colony was, in matter of time, far in advance of that on the shores of Massachusetts Bay, and the colonial period had fairly begun in the South when settlement was yet hardly established in the North. Many white children, Native Americans, had succeeded Virginia Dare in the southern colony before Peregrine White made his appearance as the pioneer American of the New England Dominion, and therefore the American type had to some extent become confirmed in the one section before it had been modeled in the other so that synchronistic treatment of the development of the American race in its beginnings is impossible, and this tends to produce confusion of statement and consequently of thought. It is fortunate for our present purpose, therefore, that the development of a distinct feminine type seems to have been almost confined to New England. The Virginia woman was not markedly individual, she had certain definite characteristics, even from the first, but these seem to have been rather of environment as modifying original race than of race as taking impression from environment. There were many reasons for this, which we shall consider later in the chapter, but for the present we will leave the woman of Virginia to turn to her younger but stronger sister of the North, the American Puritan woman. If it be true, and denial is hardly possible, that during the period of settlement women played but a small part, at least as individuals, in the general result and progress, the same statement concerning the early colonial period, at least in New England, would meet with prompt and strenuous denial at the hands of history. We are accustomed to vaunt the present as the day of feminine influence in matters of human interest. But it may be doubted if, as far as our own country is concerned, the palm must not be awarded to the early days of the Puritan settlements. Such award may not be altogether to the liking of the fair sex, since the effect of the feminine influence was almost invariably in the direction of turbulence and revolt. But that effect was very intense and formative. It was chiefly in the matters of religion, or that which passed for such, that women's influence was exerted and effectual. 
but it must be remembered that religion was the paramount subject in the consideration of the Puritan, whether male or female. None the worse for that, doubtless, were those staunch, if stern, followers of conscience, but one may be permitted to wish that they had been less unbending, less gloomy, less puritanical in short, in their ideas concerning that which they termed Christianity. As in all else, it was the women who were the extremists in this matter, and fanaticism, persecution, and enthusiasm were by the women rather than the men, and maintained at a height of fervor, not to say frenzy, that stopped short, not even at the taking of life to further its own ends or to crush the purposes of others. Before entering into this more particular portion of our present subject, however, it may be well to cast a hurried glance at the status of woman in the Puritan settlements, where these began to attain the dignity of colonies. As early as 1631, we find the court of Plymouth sending for the elders and charging them to urge upon the conscience of the people that they should avoid the costliness of apparel which was beginning to be noted as a detriment to the young colony. But, unfortunately, the worshipful court did not take into consideration all the circumstances of the case. For we read that divers of the elders' wives were partners in the general disorder, and we may be entirely sure that the elders did not dare too strenuously to urge reform in this matter. Winthrop tells us that little was done about it, so that even here we find feminine influence paramount and on the side of disorder, and this was to be the history of the sex in New England for many a day, even though there were to be notable exceptions to the rule thus begun. When we read the Twelve Good Rules of the Infant Colony, we are constrained to believe that some of them were framed with a special reference to women, and that they were dictated by some sad experiences. The twelve rules ran thus. 1. Profane no divine ordinance. 2. Touch no state matters. 3. Urge no healths. 4. Pick no quarrels. 5. Encourage no vice. 6. Repeat no grievances. 7. Reveal no secrets. 8. Maintain no ill opinions. 9. Make no comparisons. 10. Keep no bad company. 11. Make no long meals. 12. Lay no wagers. Truly a draconian code in its paternalism, but we are inevitably forced to the conclusion that the framers thereof had in their mind's eye their helpmeets when they laid down rules 6 and 8, while they must have smiled at one another when they wrote Rule 7. One of the first regulations of the infant colony was in regard to marriage, and ever and anon we find the Solons of the settlement laying down new legislation for the better enforcement of the marriage tie as a thing to breed accord rather than discord in the colony. It would seem that there was considerable trouble in regulating the matrimonial desires of maidens 
under guardianship and maidservants, since in 1638 there was published a regulation which deserves quotation in whole, both for its quaintness of phraseology and for the light which it throws upon female servitude in the colony, whether undergone because of ties of blood or of bondage resulting from apprenticeship. Whereas divers persons unfit for marriage, both in regard of their young years as also in regard to their weak estate, some practicing the inveigling of men's daughters and maids under guardians, contrary to their parents' and guardians' liking, and maidservants without leave and liking of their masters. It is therefore enacted by the court that if any shall make any motion of marriage to any man's daughter or maidservant, not having first obtained leave and consent of the parents or master to do so, shall be punished either by fine or corporal punishment, or both, at the discretions of the bench and according to the nature of the offence. It is also enacted, if that a motion of marriage be duly made to the master, and through any sinister end or covetous desire, he will not consent thereunto, then the cause to be made known unto the magistrates, and they to set down such order therein, as upon examination of the case, shall appear to be most equal on both sides. While it would seem from the first part of this somewhat puzzle-pated enactment that young years were considered as disabling one from inveigling young lady into toils of matrimony, yet in cases where it was evident that the objection of the master of the maidservant was founded upon entirely personal grounds of his own gain, there was recourse to a tribunal for the obtaining of justice. This portion of the law shows how careful were the old fathers of the country to encourage marriage wherever this could be done with no risk to the harmony of the settlement. We can also see how strict were the ideas of female servitude. Not only had the parent or guardian absolute power over the hand of the daughter or ward, but the master of an indentured servant could at least obstruct her matrimonial designs. In all these cases there was the same basic idea, the loss of service. The interest of the father in his daughter, or the guardian in his ward, and of the master in his maidservant, were supposed to be identical and to be founded on actual loss sustained through the transference of right of service from them to an alien in the family. In this fiction of the law, one can see the persistence of an idea as old as the status of women as a mere chattel, and it is curious to note that in some phrases it survives even unto the present day. There are recorded numerous instances of the enforcement of the law which has been quoted. One Will Colfox, in 1647, was brought before the court at Stratford and fined five pounds for laboring to inveigle the affection of right his daughter. And, among several other notable instances, we find Arthur Hubbard, in 1660, fined the same amount as Colfox the court this time being that of Plymouth, 
the complainant Thomas Prince, the governor of the colony, and the charge that of disorderly and unrighteously endeavoring to gain the affections of Mistress Elizabeth Prince. It would seem that Master Hubbard was as persistent as he was unrighteous, for after an interval of seven years we find him again mulcted of the same amount for the same offense regarding the same lady, but his patient waiting had its reward, as in a few months he became the happy husband of Mistress Prince. Yet the law did not exclusively care for the father and threaten the suitor, for the latter, as we have seen, had recourse of law if he were unjustly rejected by the master of a maid, and it would seem that this part of the statute was held to apply to the father as well, since in 1661 Richard Taylor obtained judgment against the father of Ruth Weldon for interfering with the marriage of the young pair. Probably the court issued something in the nature of a perpetual injunction, but its task must have been most difficult in the case of another youth, Ralph Parker by name, who having been sent about his business by the sire of his fair lady, actually sued said sire for loss of time incurred in courting. Nor were there lacking maids to aid their lovers to avoid the penalty of the law. There is record of one Sarah Tuttle, who was, on May Day in the year 1660, and in the colony of New Haven, while on an errand to a neighbor, Dame Merlin, kissed by Jacob Merlin in the very presence of his mother and sisters. The chronicler, doubtless with shocked feelings, but not without a suggestion of smacking of his lips as well, records that they sat down together, his arm being about her, and her arm upon his shoulder or about his neck, and he kissed her, and she kissed him, or they kissed one another, continuing in this posture about half an hour, as Maria and Susan testified, which, when one considers the detail, was doubtless very shocking, and we cannot wonder that Goodman Turtle hauled Merlin into court on the charge of inveigling the affections of Sarah his daughter. But behold, Sarah, being asked in court if Jacob inveigled her, said, No. This was a baffling of justice, perhaps unprecedented, for only absolute inveiglement could constitute guilt under the statute and the party most concerned denied the criminality of the accused by taking the guilt upon herself. It is no wonder that the scandalized court took occasion to call Sarah a bold virgin and find her a goodly amount, though on what count does not appear. Two years afterward, half the fine was remitted, nor does it appear that the remaining moiety was ever paid which seems just as well, since the real sufferer would have probably been Master Tuttle, the plaintiff, who would naturally be called on to pay his daughter's debt, which would have been a miscarriage of justice indeed. It would seem from these accounts that matrimony was hedged about with difficulty in the time of the Puritans, but this was far from being the true state of the case. 
On the contrary, marriage was in every way given encouragement. In several towns, bachelors about to change their condition were allotted tracts of ground from the commonwealth, and maid lots were granted at Salem until frowned upon by that grand old Puritan, Endicott, who placed on the town records his opinion that it was best to discontinue the custom and avoid all precedents of evil events of granting lots unto single maidens not disposed of. Spinsters of uncertain age were difficult to find in those days. The time and circumstances called for matrimony as a duty to the state as well as to oneself. The death of the sister-in-law of Governor Bradford was recorded with the addition of some words of wonder that, even though ninety-one years of age, she was a godly old maid never married. Yet even then there was a measure of respect for those women who refrained from matrimony, and some of these were commended for their choice. There is to be found in Life and Errors of John Dunton an account of a maiden lady which is worth quoting, not only for the picture of the lady herself, but for the light which it throws upon some of the customs of its time, which was, however, rather later than the days which have been thus far considered. It is true an old, or superannuated, maid in Boston is thought such a curse as nothing can exceed it, and looked on as a dismal spectacle. Yet she, by her good nature, gravity, and strict virtue, convinces all, so much as the fleering bow, that it is not her necessity but her choice that keeps her a virgin. She is now about thirty years, the age which they call a thornback, yet she never disguises herself and talks as little as she thinks of love. She never reads any plays or romances, goes to no balls or dancing match, as they do who go to such fairs, to meet with Chapman. Her looks, her speech, her whole behavior are so very chaste that but once, at Governor's Island, where we went to be merry at roasting a hog, going to kiss her, I thought she would have blushed to death. Our damsel, knowing this, her conversation is generally amongst the women, as there is least danger from that sex, so I found it no easy matter to enjoy her company, for most of her time, save what was taken up in needlework and learning French, etc., was spent in religious worship. She knew time was a dressing room for eternity, and therefore reserves most of her hours for better uses than those of the comb, the toilet, and the glass. And, as I am sure, this is most agreeable to the virgin modesty which should make marriage an act of their obedience rather than their choice. And they think that their friends, too slow-paced in the matter, give certain proof that lust is their sole motive. But as the damsel I have been describing would neither anticipate nor contradict the will of her parents, so do I assure you she is against forcing her own by marrying where she cannot love, and that is the reason she is still a virgin. The ideas of the old critic, 
would hardly commend themselves in their entirety to modern times, yet they hold a germ of truth. Marriage customs among the early colonists presented some curious contrasts. The practice of bundling, probably imported from Wales, was long extant in the rural districts, yet in the same district in which this custom was most prevalent, there was another practice of the opposite extreme of prudery, whereby those who were passing through the first and even intermediate stages of courtship were first to do their spiriting in the presence of the household, the only license of propinquity granted to them being the privilege of whispering their words through a hollow stick about six feet long, known as a courting stick. The use of this as a conductor ensured secrecy to the speech of love, but the enforced separation must have been terribly disheartening at times, and there must have been occasions when the lover longed to lay the stick upon the backs of the company and put them to flight. It must have been as difficult to be impassioned through this medium as nowadays to propose through a telephone. There was an abundant protection for wives in the early laws of the northern colonies. Bigamy was forbidden in a law which forbade a man to marry two wives which were both alive for anything that can appear otherwise at one time, which strikes one as more well-meaning than lucid. The husband must not beat his wife or even abuse her with angry words, while she, on the other hand, if she gave vent to a cursed and shrewish tongue, was in danger of the stocks or the ducking-stool. The husband was not allowed to desert his wife for long, or even to keep her in an outlying and dangerous situation, else the town will pull his house down. Woman may have been regarded as the weaker vessel by the old Puritans, but they were determined that her interests should not be neglected, at least so far as in that age was well and customary. Though marriage was in many ways hedged about with safeguards, there existed in the earliest times at Plymouth a form of public betrothal which too often was considered as sufficient by the parties thereto. It was called a pre-contract, but was not entirely binding. There was usually a sermon preached on the occasion of the ceremony, and it was the custom to allow the bride to choose the text which she thought was most applicable to the general or particular circumstances of the case. Marriage was for long by bands, and the ceremony was at first performed by magistrates and not by clergymen. This fact, as well as the further fact that any man of dignity came under the generic title of magistrate in the meaning of the custom, gave rise to many complications and no little scandal, as in the case of old Governor Bellingham, who, when a widower of forty-nine, married himself to Penelope Pelham, who was not half his age. This acting in the dual capacity of the bridegroom and magistrate was a little too much for the patience of the community, 
and the governor was called upon to stand trial for his offense. But as he insisted upon his prerogative of occupying the bench, the result was not edifying. There were many local customs at marriages which were by no means admirable, such as the scrambling for the bride's garter, the bedding of the newly wedded pair, and like fashions, imported from the rural districts of England. These things were carried to such a length that restrictive laws were found necessary, and in 1651 mixed and unmixed dancing at taverns during wedding ceremonies was distinctly forbidden. Dancing may seem to us incongruous with the spirit of the old Puritan life, but dance they did, as is evident from the law referred to, and from the fact that dancing persisted as an accompaniment of all weddings. Though a little out of its period, it may be recorded here that in 1769 there were danced at one wedding 92 jigs, 50 contradances, 43 minuets, and 17 hornpipes, all being safely accomplished by a little past midnight. Enough of the general for the present. Let us come to the particular in exemplification of the status of women among the old Puritans. In the beginning of this chapter, the statement was made that women played a most prominent part in the religious polity of the northern colonies, and it is as well that the assertion should now be established. The early history of New England holds the stories of more than one remarkable woman, and one of the most remarkable among them was Mrs. Anne Hutchinson, who may be selected as in many regards a typical New England woman of the early colonial days. It is true that Mrs. Hutchinson was not an American by birth, and had even passed some forty years of her life when she had first stood upon the shores of our country. But she was of those who invaded this land filled with the spirit of liberty that afterward took such a strong root, and in the genius of her nature she was emphatically American. The old New England spirit found no better exposition than in this daughter by adoption, and it is for this reason that she has been chosen, being of one stock with the native Puritans, as typical of the woman of her time and country. Mrs. Anne Hutchinson, who had been born in England about 1590, landed at Boston on September 18, 1634. She came in the name of religious liberty, seeking that freedom which she was denied in the land of her birth. But even on her voyage to our shores, she had excited suspicions as to her orthodoxy, and there was some delay, probably at the insistence of the Reverend Mr. Sims, her fellow passenger, in granting her membership in the First Church of Boston. She had been somewhat free, according to Mr. Sims, in venting her revelations on the outward voyage, but her kindly attitude toward friends and acquaintances soon reconciled most of the Bostonians to her presence in their midst. The fact was that Mrs. Hutchinson was what was in those days known as a notable woman. 
she could be very helpful to those in trouble in mind, body, or spirit, and she was skillful in a very comprehensive pathology. Weld of Roxbury tells us that she was a woman very helpful in the time of childbirth and other occasions of bodily disease, and well furnished with means for those purposes. True, he also calls her the American Jezebel, but even in his blame of her he admits, though he probably did not mean it as a compliment, that she was of nimble wit and active spirit, and a very voluble tongue, more bold than a man, though in understanding and judgment inferior to many women. The latter part of this description simply meant that Master Weld did not agree with the theories promulgated by Mrs. Hutchinson. And indeed, it needed not to be very prejudiced to agree with Master Weld herein, for Mrs. Hutchinson, though she sat under Mr. Cotton and professed great love for his doctrines, was undoubtedly more than tainted by antinomianism, a word in its broad acceptation signifying the consciousness of justification by faith, and an abiding justification that could not be shaken by even the commission of sin. Hence, said the enemies of the antinomians, these latter took advantage of their presumed state of grace to live as they pleased, licentiously or cleanly, they being surely saved by their faith, and therefore free to mold their works as they chose. This was carrying to its extreme the theory of sanctification professed by the antinomians. Yet it was not an unfair deduction from the tenets of that body. The antinomians were looked upon as menaces to the morality of any land in which they took root, as pursuing pleasure and vice under the cloak of fanaticism. To make matters worse in the Boston colony, just at this time with which we are concerned, the new governor, Henry Vane, was vehemently suspected of being an advocate of the hated sect. And therefore, when Mrs. Hutchinson began to hold women's meetings, at which she set forth her religious tenets, which were perilously close to antinomianism, though she, as well as her chief ally and brother-in-law, John Wheelwright, never admitted the applicability of the title. There arose an outcry against these proceedings. Wheelwright was brought to trial on certain counts, and he and Governor Vane, with Cotton himself, he having been gradually brought into the controversy in a rather singular manner, formed a party which was opposed to the mass of the Puritans and was considered little less than a scandal. At the end of a three-week session held in Cambridge to deal with this matter of heresy, the first American clerical synod condemned the opinions of the recalcitrants and then proceeded to adopt a resolution which is of more importance to us than was their general condemnation. It ran thus, that though women might meet, some few together, to pray and edify one another, yet such a set assembly as was then in practice at Boston 
where sixty or more did meet every week, and one woman, in a prophetical way, by resolving questions of doctrine and expounding scripture, took upon her the whole exercise, was agreed to be disorderly and without rule. Though this expression of opinion, for it was, after all, but little more, on the part of the synod, was aimed at the special case of Mrs. Hutchinson, it is none the less some general interest in its broad statement. Evidently, the Puritans were at one with St. Paul in his opinion that women should be silent in the churches. Nonetheless, for the fulminations of the synod, did Mrs. Hutchinson continue to hold the meetings that were so repugnant to the elders of the colony, and by this time she had become a real power. That she was entirely convinced of the truth of her tenets, of the divine source of her revelations, and of the honesty and purity of her own purpose is certain. That she was considerably influenced by a love of notoriety and an intense natural combativeness is at least probable. Opposition, especially that which took the form of contempt for her sex and intelligence, only inflamed her the more, and soon she became really turbulent in her denunciations of the ruling powers. Matters became so grave, threatening not only the orthodoxy, but the peace of the colony, that drastic measures were decided upon. John Wheelwright was first disenfranchised and banished, and then Mrs. Hutchinson was summoned before the court. The proceedings on the occasion of her arraignment may best be set forth in the words of Winthrop, that prejudiced yet trustworthy chronicler. The court also sent for Mrs. Hutchinson and charged her with divers matters, as her keeping two public lectures every week in her house where to sixty or eighty persons did usually resort, and for reproaching most of the ministers, viz. all except Mr. Cotton, for not preaching a covenant of free grace, and that they had not the seal of the Spirit, nor were able ministers of the New Testament, which were clearly proven against her, though she sought to shift it off. And after many speeches to and fro, at last she was so full as she could not contain, but vented her revelations, amongst which was this one, that she had it revealed to her that she should come into New England and should here be persecuted, and that God would ruin us and our posterity, and the whole state for the same. So the court proceeded and banished her, but because it was winter they committed her to a private house, where she was well provided, and her own friends and the elders permitted to go to her, but none else. To the modern mind there is in that account merely the picture of an excitable, overwrought, hysterical woman, keyed to the pitch of rejoicing and martyrdom, and venting her revelations to this end and under an impulse of enthusiasm. It seems impossible that she should be taken seriously, yet perhaps the court was in the right, for such a woman, at once intelligent and fanatical, may have been a greater threat to the community than it is possible for us to realize at this day. 
Excommunication followed the sentence of the court, and her bearing under this ban confirms the opinion above expressed concerning her happiness in finding martyrdom. For we are told by Winthrop that, after she was excommunicated, her spirits, which seemed before to be somewhat dejected, revived again, and she gloried in her sufferings, saying that it was the greatest happiness next to Christ that ever befell her. She was to have plenty of that kind of happiness in her life, for Mr. Cotton, once her firm ally, pronounced against her the censure of the church, and even one of her sons deserted her in her adversity and took sides with her enemies. Her husband appears to have been from the first either a very feeble ally or a silent disapprover of her methods. She was persecuted in many ways, even after her removal to Providence, Rhode Island, and certain maternal troubles, the result of physical causes, were gleefully taken advantage of by her enemies and chronicled as divine punishments for her heresy. The latter part of her life must be written down a failure, though it held a brave struggle to maintain a gallant front to her foes. And when, in August 1643, she fell one of the victims of an Indian massacre, even her best friends must have felt that there was little cause to regret her fate. She had been in the colonies about two years before she began to preach, about four before she was excommunicated, and about nine before her death. In that time she had proved a firebrand, and a disturber of the peace, such as had not before been known, and she had threatened to disrupt the colony of Boston and rend it into lasting separation. She had failed, but she had made manifest a danger. She had done more than this. She had proved the possibility of woman as an element in the polity and progress of the state. In her way, she was a pioneer. She was the first American woman to take a decided lead in matters of general interest. She was the first to hold meetings, to claim for her sex the privilege of freedom as claimed by the men of the pilgrims. She was the first American woman to uprear the banner of her sex in the matter of independence. She may be said to have been the prototype of all the succeeding upholders of women's rights. When Winthrop, at her trial, brought up the accusation of having held women's meetings, she quoted, a clear rule in Titus that the elder women should instruct the younger. Then Winthrop asked her if she would instruct and hundred men, if they desired it, to which she replied that she would not, but would instruct any one man who might so wish. She insisted positively upon her right to teach in her own way, and asked, Do you think it not lawful for me to teach women, and why do you call me to teach the court? She may have been somewhat hazy as to a real theological creed, but she assuredly held clear ideas as to the rights of her sex. Above all, and in this, she was highly typical of the American woman of latter days. She was an enthusiast. 
contrary though the theory be to the general belief the most salient and persistent trait among the puritan was enthusiasm however it hid itself behind a cold and contained exterior it was their enthusiasm that made them what they were that enabled them to found their portion of a mighty nation they were the most intensely enthusiastic people that ever went to the making of a nation not a cavalier not a frenchman not a castilian ever held the fire that burned in the spirit of these old puritans even though the stroke of iron was needful visibly to call it from their flint in anne hutchinson that overpowering quality of enthusiasm was to be found in a superlative degree and thus above all we find in her the type of the coming woman of america hardly had the echoes of antinomian controversy died away when there came to new england a yet more rending cataclysm in which women were again the leading spirits this was the intrusion of the quakers to us it may seem as absurd as wonderful that the noble doctrines of the society of friends should once have been regarded as especially dictated by the father of lies but when the quakers reached at last the shores of new england with their pernicious doctrines it seemed to the puritans that the devil had been unchained in their midst when on july eleventh sixteen fifty six there arrived in the port of boston a ship which among other passengers brought to the colony two women anne austin and mary fisher who were known to be members of the accursed sect there ensued a general consternation which was well satirized by bishop in his new england judged when he writes two poor women arriving in your harbor so shooky to the everlasting shame of you as if a formidable army had invaded your borders it would require little less than a volume to set forth the reasons which caused the puritans so to hate and fear the quakers but it is enough for our present purpose that we understand that not a plague of smallpox or cholera could have created such consternation as did the coming of these two feeble women mary fisher a most enthusiastic follower of fox had already undergone martyrdom in the attempt to spread the faith of her co-religionists having been imprisoned in england for months and whipped until the blood ran down her body she was later to travel even as far as the dominion of the grand turk and hold speech with that potentate and at last to die an old woman at charleston south carolina when she and anne austin made their appearance in the harbor of boston more terrible to the puritans than the sea monster to andromeda they were promptly imprisoned and their tracts with which they were of course provided were burned in the marketplace they were held in bondage for some weeks and were then placed on board their ship and exiled but they had done their work if only in exciting terror and the fire that consumed their tracks was to be a spark that lighted a great conflagration when the general court met 
it passed a long and incendiary law against the coming of the Quakers, telling of their devilish opinions and providing for the fining and whipping of offenders. This did not keep away the detested sect, who believed that they were entrusted by God with a message to the world and would not be silenced. There were among them many devoted men, but there were yet more devoted women, and the second, like the first intrusion of the Quakers, was by women, Anne Burden and Mary Dyer. In August 1657 arrived a pioneer in Mary Clark, who boldly proclaimed that she came with a message from the Lord, and who found her welcome in the receipt of twenty stripes and banishment. Salem began to be known as a stronghold of the Quakers, or at least of their admirers, and among others one Cassandra Southwick, an old woman, was imprisoned for sympathy extended to the friends. Perhaps there was other reason as well, for under the date of March 9, 1660, we find that Major Hawthorne, at dinner with the governor and magistrates at a court of assistance, said that at Salem there was a woman, called Cassandra Southwick, that said she was greater than Moses, for Moses had seen God but twice, and his back, and she had seen him three times, and face to face, instancing the places. Probably Cassandra, a hominous name, was the fanatic who had become insane from a sense of self-importance, as was too often the case with religious enthusiasts, and had made herself obnoxious to the powers of the colony by her claims. We hear no more of her and her imprisonment, but she too was typical of a certain phase of New England femininity in those days. It is in Mary Dyer, however, that we find the true type of the New England Quakeress, a type which persists in more than one aspect of the American woman. Believing that she was sent by God with his words to mankind, she would not be hushed from uttering them. Sent away from Boston on her first appearance there, she soon returned and preached the infamous doctrines of her sect, peace and goodwill toward men. In the interval between her visits, the offense of which she was guilty in preaching the creed of the Quakers had been made capital, one of the deepest blots that rest upon this ever-speckled period of New England history. Mary Dyer felt that in returning to Boston to preach she was going to her death, but she held it her duty, and she did not shrink. On September 14, 1659, she was condemned to banishment or death, if she did not leave within two days. But it was no desire to escape the ultimate penalty that led her on this occasion to return to a Rhode Island home, for on October 8th she once more appeared in Boston. She was at once arrested and, with two other friends, were condemned by the court to suffer the penalty of the law, the just reward of their transgression, on the morrow. One sees a twinge of conscience in the clause in parentheses as excusatory of themselves to posterity. Mary Dyer, however, though included in the original sentence, was, 
on the intercession of her son, reprieved from death and her sentence commuted to banishment, to be forthwith executed if she returned. In the meanwhile, she was to go with the other two condemned to the place of execution, and to stand upon the gallows with a rope about her neck till her companions were executed. She went to her ignominious punishment as to a wedding day, and heartened her companions for their trial, though they needed no encouragement. Moreover, she did not wish to accept her own life at the hands of those who had made the unjust law under which her companions suffered. She, probably believing that the already large number of Quaker sympathizers would be enlarged by the spectacle of a woman put to death for her faith. Probably, too, she was of the same enthusiastic spirit as Anne Hutchinson that rejoiced in martyrdom. At all events, though once more banished, she reappeared in Boston, and in little more than six months from the date of her last sentence, she was once more before the court upon the charge of rebelliously returning into this jurisdiction, notwithstanding the favor of this court towards her, and she was sentenced to die on June 1st. On that day she accordingly went to her death as calmly and triumphantly as to the crown of her life, as indeed the moment probably seemed to her. It is difficult to gauge the character of Mary Dyer, who may be taken as the type of New England Quaker of her day, even though she was of alien birth. That she was a woman of pure and holy spirit there can be no doubt, and though her persistent affronting of death may seem to savor of fanaticism, if fanaticism at all, of that sort which inspired the early Christian martyrs, she was utterly sincere, and sincerity may plead forgiveness for any mere error. 